this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Well, hey, everybody. My name is Pastor Alex. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Community Church, and we are starting a new three-week Advent series that's going to take us all the way into the Christmas season. And we're starting it today, and it's called In the Waiting. So let's start with a quick question. By a show of hands, how many of you just love waiting? How many of you guys just, like if you're at the grocery store and there's a short line and there's a line with a bunch of people in it, you say, you know what, I'm going to go to the long line. Anybody, anybody, never, never, never happens. We hate to wait. I think we all hate waiting no matter where it's at. Um, I was thinking, what do I hate about amusement parks? Waiting in line. It's the only thing. It's worlds of fun if you didn't have to wait in line. Uh, If you were to go, uh, where else can we go and we find ourselves struggling because we have to wait? Oh, you go to the coffee shop. You're excited. You're going to order your coffee, and there's people in front of you. Or even worse, you ordered ahead on the app, and then you pull around, and you're in a drive through line that seems like eternity. And you're like, there's no way my coffee is going to be hot. We all hate to wait, whether it's airport security or or waiting for your significant other to get ready to leave. Anybody relate? Anybody relate? See, my family, um, they're waiting on me. And it's not because I take a long time to get ready. I just don't start when they start. Because there's something, and my wife, she's, she's like, listen. She says, if we're on time, we're late. And I say, I wasn't raised that way. I don't know if you know my dad. But on time means you're on time, so we don't need to leave early. Uh, And so because of that, she's often got the kids dressed, the kids packed, the kids in the car, the kids with seatbelts on, the car running before I ever get out there. Uh, But, you know, we all hate that idea of waiting, and I'm glad that she entertains herself on Instagram or whatever instead of just boiling with anger towards me. Um, You ever been in one of those public scenarios where you've got, like, a kid, and the kid's being a little obnoxious, and we know that all kids are wonderful, they're from God, but every now and then there's somebody else's kid and it's driving you nuts, and you're waiting, just waiting for that parent to step in and say, that's enough, and they never do. Do it. And you're just waiting. The pain, the pain of waiting, it is so, so great. Um, I was thinking about places that I've had to wait a long time. Uh, how many of you love going to the DMV? Don't you love that? And you always have to wait. It, but, you know, if there is a silver lining, you get to people watch. And there's people in society I did not know existed until I went to the DMV. And I was like, wow, who knew? Um, there's always some things. You ever been behind a car and the light turns green, but they didn't realize it? And you're waiting. How long do you wait? How many of you are hitting the horn really quick? I actually, so the, yesterday I was in the church van with my dad. And uh, I, I forgot that I wasn't in my little Hyundai car. So my Hyundai car, the horn's like, E-e-e-e. you know, it's no big deal. I was in the church van in this car in front of me. All the traffic went. Not the Mustang in front of me. It had enough juice. It just needed to go. It was the church van horn. Oh, I was like, oh, Ooh. I feel bad, but I better get over it. So, and, and then probably the worst is waiting at the doctor's office because they send you to a room that is designated only for waiting. There's nothing else to do in there. It's the worst room in the world. You just go there, and what do we do? Wait. 
I hate waiting. We hate waiting. We all hate waiting. And we live in a time in which we're doing everything we can to not have to wait. Some of you remember dial-up internet. That was a waiting game. You would click and wait. Now we have high-speed internet. We don't have to wait. We love convenience. We want things now. We don't want to wait. I, I, I read this in the New York Times. They posted this article not so long ago that said that almost 40% of people in their 20s said that cold cereal was an inconvenient breakfast choice. Let me explain. It was inconvenient because they said we have to clean up after eating it. And they felt like the rest of their day was on hold. They were waiting to get started with their day because they had to clean up. Now, I I don't know if you know this. All that's required to eat cold cereal is a bowl, some milk, cereal, and a spoon. That's it. That's it. That's all you need. But apparently, and this is wild, cereal sales have actually been going down in recent times by like 30%. Like the cereal industry is like, we don't know what to do. We didn't know we would ever be inconvenient to people. But we live in this time where apparently doing the dishes afterwards is just too much work. The the 20-something said, we want something that comes in a disposable carton. That way we can throw it away immediately and move on with our day. Like, it's true. We live in this world of convenience. We don't want to wait. We want to get going. Um, earlier this week, my wife and I, we uh, took our kids out to the Bass Pro Shop, which is always an exciting experience because they had Santa Claus out there. So we went and took some pictures with Santa and looked at all the dead animals. And my kids are like, are they dead? How did they die? Who killed them? And I'm like, I don't know if I want to answer all these questions, but there's Santa. Let's go take a picture. <laughs> So, so we're, we're leaving, and of course we're on I-70, and I-70 is always a joy to drive, isn't it? And, and, and I got behind somebody that decided, decided they didn't want to drive. Like, they didn't want to drive like everybody else, and it wouldn't have bothered me so much, except they were in the fast lane. Get over. Get out of the way. You're making me wait for you so I can get to where I'm trying to go. And this made me wonder, what generation is the worst at driving? And so I found this, this awesome study that AAA did on which generation is most likely to demonstrate aggressive behavior while driving. And it was so good I had to share it. So on this study, they had five generations listed. The first generation was the younger Gen Zs, the 17 and 18-year-olds. They're young. They got their license. Then you've got the older Gen Z, 19 to 24-year-olds. Then you got the millennials. This is my crew, 25 to 39. Any millennials in the house? Come on, let's go. Uh, any Gen Xers, 40 to 59. We got any of the Pepsi generation in here? Yeah, yeah. Some of you are like, I don't want to raise my hand. <laughs> Baby boomers, 60 to 74. Come on, there's a little life. They still think they're the best generation. And then, and then the post-war generation, which is kind of like 75 plus. That's kind of how they categorize it. Some of you are like, I'm not in the right category anymore. Everybody divvies it up differently. So here's what you need to do. Look at your friend or the person next to you. If you don't know who they are, find out who they are. You're going to play a little game with them. You're going to guess which generation does this aggressive behavior the most, okay? So we're going to start with which generation is most likely to tailgate someone? What do you think? This first one's going to go to my generation, millennials. We will tailgate you. So just FYI, we won that uh, by a landslide. We, we tailgate more than anyone else. Second to us would have been Gen X. Uh, who's most likely to yell? 
you're in traffic and you're going to actually not just think a thought, you're going to allow it to come out of your mouth. What generation do you think? I thought it would be the boomers too. It was my generation yet again. We are two for two. It was close, but we definitely won that. Um, who's most likely to honk their horn? Like they're mad and... Again, millennials. I could not believe this study. It was throwing us under the bus. We are. Uh, now, 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 this, now we're going to another level, all right? To tailgate, you just kind of got up there, you're frustrated, or you said something under your breath, or you honked your horn. But now you're going to gesture. You know what I mean. There's a gesture coming. You're going to use some sign language to communicate with the drivers around you. Which generation do you think is going to be the most likely to... Would you believe it's my generation again? The millennials rock that uh, more than anybody else. The least likely would have been the post-war. I don't think they knew that there was aggressive driving necessary, but my generation definitely. Who's most likely to block you from changing lanes? You ever had that person? That's my generation again. Most likely to cut you off? My generation. Most likely to confront you? What's well, a whole nother level? My generation. Most likely to bump or ram you. It's not my generation. Gen Z, you got to watch out for those 19 to 24-year-olds. They be coming after you. So here's the deal. Why do we have aggressive driving? Maybe we got offended or somebody's slowing us down or they're making us wait. We hate to wait. And when we're forced to wait, we can become frustrated. We can become annoyed. We can have this aggression that comes out, and it can be exhibited as a bitterness towards people or an anger or, or we're mad, or maybe we don't even know where to direct the bitterness and anger. It's just, it's kind of floating. We don't know. If you come in our way, watch out. I'm, I'm bitter. I'm, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I don't like waiting. And, and, and I've found that waiting rarely brings the best out in people. Normally, after people wait a long time, you don't see their best side. Um, normally, when people are forced to wait, uh, they just tend to become a worst version of themselves. And, and waiting, man, it can take on so many forms. It can happen in so many places. But as I think about waiting, I would submit that the most frustrating time to wait is when we're waiting for God to do something. Have you ever been there? You're, you, you've prayed You've got circumstances, you got problems, you got pain, you got things going on, and you know that God is supposed to be this loving God who cares about you and loves you, right? And where is he? When's he showing up? How long do I have to wait for this miracle? How long do I have to wait for God to do something? I don't know if there's anything more frustrating. I would take the DMV all day long over waiting for God to do something supernatural. It's funny because I think sometimes if, you, if you've been in church or you're, you're a Christian, you're like, okay, you know, I, I prayed, I asked God to move. I even cried. There was a tear. I know I meant the prayer. But where's God, Right? And, and, and when you sit in that waiting, when you're waiting for God to do something, we become bitter. We become frustrated. We become annoyed. We become irritated. Where is God? We almost become like that small child in the backseat on a road trip that's just asking, 
Hey, are we there yet? Hey, how, how long do I have to endure sitting in this backseat before we can have a change? Now, here's the th- interesting thing. When we look at the Bible, and, and the Bible, I'm, I'm so amazed by it. I was introduced to the Bible as a child, and now as an adult, I realize, man, there's so much to the Bible. It's so uh, interesting just one, how it came together, and that it was written so many years ago, and that it's a collection of these ancient writings, and that there's over 40 authors that span 1,500 years, and somehow or another, they're all feeding into the same storyline. I mean, it's an incredible book. And as you start to dive into the Bible, you start to learn different things, and and maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, maybe you care, maybe you don't, but I'm sharing anyway. But in the Bible, you have all of these authors, and they're all writing in different writing genres. There's different categories to how they're writing. I don't know if you knew this, but about 43% of the Bible is made up of narrative. It's just, here's the narrative of what's happening. They went from here to here. It's narration. About 33%, a third of the Bible is poetry. What? I don't like poetry. And the third of the Bible's poetry is written in a poetic sense. We don't understand when it's translated from Greek and Hebrew how that poetry is, but it's in there. It includes songs or reflective poetry as people think about who God is or what he's done. Even some of the passionate, politically charged statements that the uh, prophets in the Old Testament would make about like what's going on in their culture and what that means. It's all kind of wrapped in this poetic language. And the final part is what is kind of called prose discourse, and this is kind of that final 24%, and this is where we find all the laws or the sermons or the letters and all that type of stuff. And so when we approach the Bible, it's not just one writing genre. It's got this nuances and different things, and, and we understand it better when we understand what type of writing it is. And so in the middle of your Bible, if you were to open it up, you're going to find the book of Psalms, which is a funny word because it starts with a P. But you don't say the P, it's silent. Psalms, okay? And Psalms is the largest book in the entire Bible. And the word psalm actually means sacred song or hymn. So in essence, Psalms is a large songbook. It's, it's a, a hymnal, if you will, of all of these ancient writings in these songs. And so the song or the psalm that I want us to look at today falls into a category known as the Psalms of Lament. Oh, Psalms of Lament. And, and all of this is in that poetic genre of writing. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The problem I have with poetry, and this is probably just my personal problem, is that poetry tends to make things sound better or nicer than they really are. Have you noticed that? Like you're in poetry and you're hearing this and it's pleasing to the ears. It's pleasant words. But it could really be offensive. For instance... Roses are red, violets are blue. I lied when I said it's me and not you. You see how that works? It's poetry. It sounds pleasant. It sounds nice. But, but then at the end, the reality is, oh, that's, that's not so nice. It was, it was me and not you. What? What? Is that why we broke up? So, so when we get into this part of Psalms of Lament, that just sounds so pleasant and nice, but I think it would be better categorized as psalms of complaint, okay? This is the complaint. It's a lament. It's, a, it's, too, it's too flowery for me. It's a complaint. They're unhappy. They're not pleased with what God's doing. Where is God? I've got a problem. Here's my song of complaining. 
I got a complaint. We call it a prayer if you want. Hey, God, where are you? What are you doing? That's kind of the tone that they take. So we're going to look at one of these, which is awesome, uh, because I think some of you are complainers. You would never admit it, but you are. And inside, you're complaining about things. And you're like, where is God? So, so we're going to look at this. The author of Psalm 13, that's where we're going to be, is none other than the famous king of Israel, King David. Now, a lot of you know King David. Remember David and Goliath? Same dude. He just got older. And as he got older, he began to write these songs. And if you know anything about him, he was a harp player. And so he had, like, as the king, he had, like, a whole band available. Like, he could send this to the choir director. He could have all of these things put to music. And when we get to this one, this is a psalm of lament. It's his complaint. And we have to stop and realize, like, David experienced God moving in his life like maybe nobody ever had. Like, he went out on a battlefield in the name of God with a slingshot and a little rock and took down a giant. The whole nation was in an uproar because, like, he did this in the power of God. God's hand was with him. If you were David, wouldn't you walk every day and be like, wow, God is amazing. The Goliath fell in my life. But like all of us, Goliath fell, but there were new problems. That battle was so much yesterday, I've got a problem today. And so we get to this psalm in which he is in complaint mode. He is tired of waiting. And he asks this question, and I want you to pay attention to it, over and over again. He's asking God, how long? How long? So check this out. Six verses, we're going to read the whole chapter. Psalm chapter 13. Oh, Lord... How long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me. O oh Lord my God, restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying, we've defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. David hates waiting. We hate waiting. David continues to ask God, how long, how long, Lord, must I wait? Have you ever experienced pain in your life that you weren't sure was ever going to end? Have you ever wondered if the frustrations and the struggles that you're going through, are these going to last forever? How long is a desperate cry? And it's not so much even a question of when is the precise time, God, that you're going to show up, what date on the calendar is. It's not even that. It's more of this plea that, God, would you just break the silence? God, would you just show up some way, somehow? How long must I endure? Have you found yourself ever asking that question? How long must I endure? How long will I be here? Have you ever wondered if God hears your prayers? 
Have you ever been in that wilderness waiting for God to do something so long? You've been waiting so long, you're like, I don't even know if he's hearing my prayers anymore. But then you're like, no, I grew up in church, or I heard that pastor once upon a time say that Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, God's got a good plan for me. But at your core, you're kind of like, you know, I'd like to negotiate with God on that plan. Like, I don't know if he really knows my side of the story. I'd like to help him have more information. And, and, and I think that God might do better if he knew my ideas concerning his plan. And so as we start to read Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, this is the place that David's in. He feels like God has abandoned him. And four times in these first two verses, he asks this question, how long? How long, God, are you going to be away? How long until you show up? How long am I going to feel like I'm doing life by myself? And I know some of you can relate to that. Maybe you're enduring some form of suffering. And maybe it feels as though God has forgotten you. Maybe you even feel as though you've been rejected by God somehow. Can I tell you that it's, it's okay to feel that way? It's okay to be honest about that. I mean, we see it in the Bible. Even David wrote and prayed to God and asked and allowed these feelings of, I don't know if you're even present. I know you did something in my past, but are you still here? Are you absent? If you're in that place, it's okay to be honest enough to say that. We can be real. We can be genuine about this. It's okay to admit you're not okay. And David here is admitting, I'm not okay. He's being honest about his frustration. He's lamenting. He's complaining. But, but what's interesting about Psalm 13, and, and I, I'm, I'm guessing that you picked up on this, is that there was a movement that took place in it. There was a shift and I don't know if you noticed it, and it took place really between verse 4 and verse 5. It was like complaining, 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 how long, how long, how long, and then, hey, God, I'm just going to go ahead and be all chipper, and I'm going to be all in. And so there's this shift that takes place in Psalm 13, and I, I want you to notice it because it was a shift from plea, of pleading with God to praising God. There's these two guys, they wrote this book called Psalms, um, not the Bible one. Uh, there was a, a commentary written by Brueggemann and Bellinger, and here's what they write, and I'll put this up here just so that you can see this. The wonder of these prayers, like Psalm 13, is that the prayers move so that everything is different at the end from what it was at the beginning. And all this form of rhetoric accomplishes this move. We should not miss that it is the power and transformative agency of Yahweh that makes this dramatic move possible. Now, I like this last line. The issue finally is not literary or rhetorical, but theological. That there's this shift that's taking place, and it's not just pretty writing, it's not just poetic writing, but there's a shift that's happening because God's involved in David's life. And when we read Psalm 13, you guys saw that plea to praise and that weird gap that happened in between verse 4 and 5. And I don't know how long David had written before he started writing verse 5. I don't know what God did in that place, but Brigham and Bellinger in their book continue to say this. They say that the psalm turns on the strange, frightened gap between verses 1 through 4 and verses 5 through 6 when something decisive and transformative has occurred. Like there's something that happened. 
What happened at that point is a matter of hypothesis. We don't really know what happened. The most popular guess is that at this point in the dramatic articulation of the psalm, a divine oracle of assurance, a salvation oracle, was declared by an authorized pastoral liturgical speaker as a response to the petition of verses 1 through 4. You guys picking up on that? The idea is that this prayer is going forth. It's happening, and somebody, a spiritual leader, hears the prayer and then speaks into it. Says, hey, I see you in your pain. I hear where you're at, but let me tell you about your God. There's something that happened in this in-between place. Now, although that is a plausible explanation for the movement of the psalm, it's not necessarily the conclusion. It may just as well have been as the cry of need is articulated, the urgency is spent. The speaker may fall back on a more elemental assurance of faith. Maybe David, as he's saying this, and he's being honest about where he's at, and he's admitting that he's not where he ought to be, maybe it's in that moment that he is reminded and falls back and remembers the David and Goliath moment. He remembers the moment God's been present. He, as we sung today, remembers the goodness of God that's been with me all the days of my life. And there's a shift. Whatever happened, we don't know. We're just speculating. That in-between spot Whatever happened in the in-between, the movement permits us to work both backwards to petition, we get to bring our request to God, we get to pray, but forward to doxology. Doxology is praise. We get to move forward into praising God. This is so good. So so for you, some of you in this room are going to say, you know what, I maybe haven't been real honest with myself, or maybe I have been, but I'm in the waiting. Things aren't how they ought to be. I want God to do something. I want things to change my life. And maybe even today you're saying, you know, Pastor Alex, you're articulating where I'm at. Like, I, I hadn't realized it, but I am frustrated. I'm annoyed. I'm, I'm uneasy because I've been wanting God to do something, and it just doesn't seem like it's happening. Good news. You are just like David. This isn't anything new. But here's the thing. If it was a liturgical priest or someone who said something in the gap, I want to be that guy in the gap. If you are finding yourself at the end of verse 4 asking God how long, listen, you don't have to continue to lament and complain. I want to help you know that even in your season of waiting, you can still praise God. And if there's one point to this entire message, it's this. Don't let seasons of waiting prevent you from praising God. That's the point of this whole message. Whatever you're finding yourself in, whatever the tension is in the waiting, don't let that season stop you, prevent you, hold you back from praising God. See, some of you guys are waiting for a spouse. Oh, man. I can't tell you how many single people I've met who are like, is God ever going to bring somebody into my life? Is he ever going to bring the one? I'm so waiting for the one. And, and so they think, okay, it'll happen this next year, or it'll happen when I get on this site, or it'll happen when I go with that blind date. Or they're just in the desperateness and the openness and the frustration, and where is God in the waiting? Man, it's a real thing. And sometimes in the midst of that, they get bitter and they stop praising God. People who want to have children and they can't seem to have children. They, they can't seem to conceive. They're waiting Maybe you're in a work position and you're like, when am I ever going to get that promotion? When is anybody ever going to notice what I'm doing behind the scenes? Maybe you're saying, I just want some financial stability in my life. God, can't you meet me there? I know some of you have prayed for God to heal your body. And it just seems like my body's never going to be healed. You're giving up hope that God could even heal you. 
I just, I can't praise God. My pain is too great. In the waiting, don't let any season of waiting prevent you from praising God. Maybe you believe, I don't know, this pain doesn't seem like it's going to go away. And I've prayed this prayer over and over and over again. I've prayed it year after year. I've prayed it for a decade. Where's God in this? Listen, in your season of waiting, don't let that stop you from praising God. In our faith journey, we all are going to have to learn and relearn patience. We're going to have to learn how to operate on God's timing, and we should praise him because he's in charge. He's driving it. And even though we don't understand what he's doing, we have to believe that he knows what he's doing. I don't get what he's doing, but I believe that he knows what he's doing. That's part of our faith. So do you have enough faith in the waiting to declare that you trust his faithful love? Even in the face of what you're going through and the pain and it doesn't seem like some stuff, can you do what David did in verse 5? In verse 5, he said this, but I trust in your unfailing love. Everything I said is true. I've got this tension in how long, God, but I trust in your unfailing love. I may not be feeling your love, but your love is unfailing. Your love is still present. I may not sense it. I may not feel it. I may want a different expression of it, but your love is unfailing. And so I will rejoice It's almost like a choice of my will. I will choose to rejoice because you've already rescued me. Sometimes we want God to continue to do miracle after miracle in our life, but let's never miss the fact that the beginning of your faith journey, when you first put your trust in Jesus, the process of you being lost to becoming found, that was a miracle. I mean, that was a miracle. Some of you guys were hopeless It did not look good. You didn't grow up in church like me. So how many of you, I know your stories. Some of you should have been dead. Some of you drank more alcohol than anybody's ever thought about drinking. Some of you guys have done so foolish of choices in your lives and made so many dumb choices that you had these horrible consequences. And somehow, God, in his unfailing love, continued to draw you to him. And he saved you. And now, 10 years later, you're like, "But, but my knee hurts and he doesn't seem to hear me. Okay, knees are going to wear out, but he is still a good God. And we got to not get past the fact that he saved you for eternity. The Hebrew word here for unfailing love, it's rooted in, in this covenant language that God has made a covenant with humanity. And so David's trust is not in himself, but in the God of the covenant who promised that he would show faithful love to all who obey him. And verse 6 is interesting because he says, I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. This is David making a vow. Listen, I'm going to sing. God, you hear me? I promise, even if you don't show up, even if it's a long time, I will sing to you because you're good to me. We sometimes have to declare that he is good even when we're not seeing it because he's still good. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the declaration of hope that is made is not necessarily what God will do for me, 
It's a declaration of who God is. And so, as Christians, and if you're not a Christian, man, this is one great reason to become a Christian. As a Christian, we can be confident that all will end well in eternity. We can be confident that all will end well in eternity. Even if right now it don't look like it's going to end well. Guess what? As a Christian, I have hope it's all going to end well in eternity. Friends, don't let seasons of waiting prevent you from praising God. Don't let seasons of waiting prevent you from praising God. I'd like to invite our worship band to to come back to the stage. And as they do that, we're going to sing a final song today. I'm going to give you an opportunity to praise God in the midst of your waiting. But before we do that, I'd like for you guys just to maybe bow your heads with me, maybe close out some distractions. And I, just, I need to ask this question. If, if you don't have confidence that all will end well in eternity because you know you've never really put your faith in Jesus, you've never made that step to say, you know what, I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to put my trust here. Listen, today can be a defining moment day for you. Today can be the day that you stop trying to do it in your own power and you stop trying to control things and you give up control. You, you surrender to God and say, God, I want you to be in charge. Because when you make that step, you can have confidence that all will end well in eternity. And so if you've not made that step today and you say, you know what, I want to make that step. I want to take advantage of the free gift that Jesus has provided through his death, his burial, his resurrection. I want to receive that. If that's you, would you just, as a sign to God and even to yourself, not just have it as a thought, but just raise your hand, just a physical motion, say, I want that. I want to have confidence that all will end well in eternity. I want that faith. I want to become a Christ follower. Now, listen, I can't give you faith. You have to have faith, but I can give you some words to help you on this journey. And so I'd like to invite just everyone to pray after me. Would you all in the room, whether you raise your hand or not, would you just say this? Dear Jesus, forgive me for trying to do life on my own. I receive your forgiveness and give you my life. In Jesus, name. In Jesus' name. Amen. He says a simple prayer. That's all it starts with. Now, as we continue praying, we're in this mode of self-reflection. There are some of you in the room who may have heard this message, and you're like, you know what? I can't really relate. I, didn't, I have not really felt this waiting time. If that's you, and you say, you know, I haven't really been able to connect to this, how long feeling, man, I want you to know you got something to praise God for. There's a reason for you to praise God because you're not in that waiting spot. But I think perhaps some of you need God's help to sympathize with others who are in that troubled place. You have friends, you have family, you have people in this church who are in the waiting, but you don't have a heart for them. You don't come alongside them. If you're here and you say, you know what, I want God to change my heart to where I would sympathize, to where I would feel and be able to help minister and love others in their suffering, would you just raise your hand and say, that's me? I know that's my hand. I don't do a good job of sympathizing and, and coming alongside. I want people to get over it, and, and I need to grow in that. 
God, you see our hands, Lord, and as we are here, would you help us to represent you to others? As we've put our faith and trust in you, God, would we come alongside of people who are hurting? May we not look down on them, may we not judge them, but God, would you help us to minister to them as you would? May we see your example through the scriptures as our example. May we not avoid people groups or classes of people. May we not avoid races or ethnicities, but God, may we come alongside and may we be able to minister your love to all people so that all people would have confidence that in the end, it will be well in eternity. We thank you for your love and we thank you, God, that you're good even while we're waiting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.